0: All right. Thank you so much uh, for this opportunity. And uh, just a quick uh, side word before beginning. I did not dress up for you. I hope that doesn't disappoint you. I have a funeral right after lunch. And so I have to be ready to throw my jacket on and go and I guess stand out beside a grave in this weather and try to do a funeral. So that's why I'm dressed up. All right. Uh, Let's turn to the passage that Joe read from earlier when I was asked to speak on this subject or given the opportunity as to which of the solas I would speak on and was granted this one, uh, I knew immediately where my mind would go and that would be to the book of Romans. The only question would be which passage in Romans because there are so many which really do zero in on the topic of sola fide as you have, I think, maybe been learning and if not and are not aware of the fact... 500 years ago, during the Reformation, there were men and women who literally gave their lives for this doctrine. This was so important, so significant, they were were willing to die, not to deny sola fide. And so I hope that even though we're 500 years removed, we uh, don't have a lesser view of of its importance. And if you do, not intentionally, but if you haven't really thought it through, then my hope and prayer is that the text that we look at here this morning will, as Danny prayed, really rivet it in your heart and you will see how central, how essential, and how uncompromising we have to be on this particular doctrine. The section that Joe read from in chapter 4, and that's where we're going to primarily look this morning. Uh, This section actually goes from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. So it's a large section in which Paul describes God's righteousness imputed through justification. Now, of course, we're jumping into the middle, uh, as it were. So let me just back up quickly here. The first major section in, in Romans is what you could title God's Righteousness is Needed because of condemnation and that goes from 118 through 320 that's the you have an introduction the first 17 verses then the first major section 118 to 320 God's righteousness is needed because we all are under condemnation then we come to this second section which we're going to be looking at part of this morning God's righteousness imputed through justification let's get a running start on this text here in chapter four uh, in the last 11 verses of chapter 3 Paul has already taught thoroughly precisely and specifically on the just on the subject of justification by grace alone through faith alone so we could have chosen that text or that passage to zero in on but instead i've chosen the early verses of chapter 4 because in chapter 3 the last 11 verses he teaches on it and then Paul illustrates it with two old testament believers namely Abraham and David. By the way, these are the two, same two, that Matthew chose in the first verse of his gospel when he said this, the gospel or the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Same two, why these two? Because Abraham was the father of the nation, the man out of whom the whole nation came, and David was the one to whom the special promise was given, that out of his loins the Messiah would come. So you could say it this way, God made the covenant with Abraham and he repeated it to David. So these were two of the most illustrious men in Hebrew Scripture. So Paul chooses them to illustrate what he has been teaching at the end of chapter 3. He sets forth Abraham in verses 1 through 3. Then verses 4 and 5 draw a deduction or a principle that form a bridge to David in verses 6 through 8. So David uh, is the focus of the second illustration, Abraham the the focus of the first illustration. Why does Paul do this? I've kind of hinted, but let me spell it out. He does this for two reasons which are closely related. Number one, he wants to show that what he's teaching here in Romans isn't anything new. It's nothing new. In other words, salvation has never been by works. Even when men and women were under the Old Testament law, it wasn't by works. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. And Paul hinted at this right at the beginning of this book, Romans, when in chapter 1, verse 2, he described the gospel by saying, which God promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul made sure to link what he is going to write in Romans with the Old Testament Scriptures, and he does the same thing again here in chapter 4. His second reason for doing this is because it's obvious he wants to disarm any Jewish readers who might object to what he's teaching here, and the best way to disarm them is to prove his point by looking at or using Abraham and David, two of the most highly respected Jewish men in their history. These illustrations tie in directly with Paul's statement in chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Jews considered the first five books of the Bible the law, and they considered the rest of it the prophets. The law and the prophets. So Paul picked a man out of each category to illustrate the truth of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. Abraham's life is spelled out for us to read about in the law and David's life is spelled out for us to read about in the prophets When Abraham believed in the Lord the Lord credited righteousness to his spiritual bank account Understand Abraham was not righteous He was an idolater a worshiper of false gods But when he believed in the true God Yahweh The Lord not only forgave his sin and debt He credited him with righteousness So in verse 3 of Romans 4, Paul quotes Genesis 15-6 to prove his point. For what does the Scripture say? Genesis 15-6, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted, it was accredited, it was imputed to him for righteousness. That's Paul's first illustration. And he goes all the way back to the book of Genesis to say, as it were, this is nothing new. This is always the way God has saved men and women by grace alone, through faith alone. And then he wants to bridge Abraham's life and go into David's, and so he uses verses 4 and 5 as a bridge. He says in verse 4, Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now, this is easy enough to understand. If you work for something, then when you get it, it's not a gift, right? We all understand that. It's not a favor to pay someone what that person has earned. You worked for it, so it's owed to you. That's a basic, axiom, a basic axiom in life, a basic principle of life. You get what you work for. As a result, that's how so many people view salvation. But if you view, view salvation that way, you have it all wrong. Because salvation, what Paul is telling us here, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works. If you think you can earn salvation through works, then you're not a Christian. Let me put this in the form of a question to make the point. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that brilliant expositor in Britain last century, said this, Are you a Christian? This is how you discover the answer. Have you ceased altogether to look at yourself or to yourself in every possible way? And are you looking only and entirely and utterly to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what He has done on your behalf. And, students, the way you answer those questions, or the way any person answers those questions, reveals whether or not you really are a Christian. Because God's salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, it is not earned. And so Paul states that definitively in verse 5, he says, But, here's the contrast, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. This may be the clearest statement in all the Bible on the doctrine of justification. And listen, you cannot understand the New Testament if you don't understand the doctrine of justification. You can't understand salvation if you don't understand the doctrine of justification. You can't understand the Reformation if you don't understand the doctrine of justification. So let's pick this verse apart and go through it word by word, phrase by phrase to make sure we understand it. The first thing to notice about this verse is that justification is granted to the believer, not the worker. This verse says that very clearly. It's not the worker, it's the believer. In fact, the word believes here is a present participle, which means that the emphasis is on continuous action. I point that out because it's important to realize that true saving faith is not just a one time decision without any ongoing reality. My roots are in the South. I was born in Tennessee, spent a lot of time there. And in the Bible Belt of the South, it is so common. And it's not only there, I know it filters into the rest of the U.S., but it's extremely common in the South, for people to at some point in their lives go to a revival meeting, walk forward, and then they check the box. They're good, they think. They're good to go. They're done because they've done that. They've they've had their event, their experience. That's not what verse 5 is describing. True saving faith is an ongoing reality because it's a relationship with Jesus Christ, not some kind of one-time decision. So that's why Paul describes The Christian is one who believes on Him who justifies the ungodly. Now that's the next thing to notice about this verse. Please notice, we don't merely believe that God justifies the ungodly. We believe on Him who justifies the ungodly. There's a huge difference. Believing that God justifies the ungodly is mere mental assent to facts. And in James 2, James says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? There's no reality in his life. Can that faith save him? And the obvious answer is no. So we don't merely believe facts. We believe on him who justifies the ungodly, and that is faith. So what is faith? Well, allow me again to give you a quote, this time from R.C.H. Lenski in his commentary. He says this, We must note the biblical concept of faith. It is the hand and heart filled with Christ. It is not mere believing, but the possession of Christ. State it this way. God reckons the possession of Christ by faith for righteousness. This helps to show why the scriptures rate faith so highly. It is not because of faith as an act, but because of the content of a God-wrought faith. End quote. In other words, faith in and of itself doesn't save. Christ saves. Faith is the means by which God grants us justification. Or you could say, faith is the channel by which God grants us justification. It is the possession of Christ by faith that God credits as righteousness. That's justification. But there's way more to this verse. Notice it again. Please notice those whom God justifies. What does verse 5 say? And this is so important, students. God justifies the ungodly. So many people think that the way to be saved is to be good. So many people think that the way to obtain righteousness is by being right. But the fact of the matter is, the way to be saved is to confess that you're bad. Unless a person comes to see himself as ungodly, that person is not ready for salvation. As I've said many times through the years, a person can never be saved unless he admits he's lost. That's why Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's obviously a little bit of sarcasm in that verse, because no one is righteous and all are sinners. But the point Jesus was making was this, unless you recognize you are a sinner, His salvation will do you no good. If you refuse to swallow your pride and humble yourself by admitting that you are unrighteous and ungodly, then you will never experience the saving grace of God because verse 5 says, God only justifies the ungodly. After all, there aren't any godly people for Him to justify. So God declares us righteous, this verse says. He declares us righteous even though we're actually ungodly. Again, notice the precision with which Paul writes this. He doesn't declare us godly because we aren't godly. But He does declare us righteous. How can God do that? He can do that because of the merit of Jesus Christ. And that is why verse 24 of chapter 3 says, God does this through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The word redemption basically means payment. Jesus Christ paid our debt, and on that basis, God can and does justify those who place faith in Christ. So God doesn't just regard us as righteous without any basis, because then God would be lying. Think about this. If God said... Pick on Rick. God said, Rick isn't righteous, but I'll say he is righteous. That would be a lie. God would be lying. God doesn't do that. God imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us, and because he has done that, he can declare us legally righteous. But please notice verse 5 again. Notice that when God justifies us, we are actually ungodly. We're ungodly. Legally, we are righteous, but our character is ungodly. So justification is not a change wrought by God in us. It's a change of our standing with God. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say someone has been tried for the crime of robbery, white-collar crime, you know, taking people's retirement account, whatever, that type of thing, stocks, etc. And this man has committed dozens of robberies over a several-year period, and the amount he has stolen totals in the billions. During the trial against the man, the evidence is overwhelming. It's conclusive the man is guilty. He's guilty of dozens of counts of robbery. And he owes billions of dollars to his victims. So at the trial, at the end of the, the judge, declares the man guilty. And in addition to his punishment of a $90 million fine, the judge also orders the man to pay back all the money he has stolen from the victims. But the man doesn't have any of the money left because he squandered it all. Then, at that point, someone steps forward to the bench, to the judge, and offers to pay the $90 million fine and all of the billions of dollars owed to the victims. The judge accepts the payment from the substitute. And at that point, the criminal is declared innocent in the eyes of the court. Now, let me ask you a question. Is he really innocent? Be careful how you answer that. Legally, he is innocent. At that point, he's innocent. In the eyes of the court, he's declared righteous, although he hasn't changed one bit as a person. Students, that's the way it is with justification. That's justification. We are guilty, but God declares us righteous, even though we're guilty, because someone else has paid our debt. And that someone else is Christ Jesus. So understand this. Justification, in and of itself, justification does not change us. It doesn't change who we are or what we are like. We're still the same sinful person we always were. But justification changes our legal standing in the eyes of God. Now, let me hasten to add this. Those whom God justifies, He also regenerates and He sanctifies to actually make us righteous. But, please hear this, justification in and of itself is not God making us righteous. It's not. It is God declaring us righteous. Now, we know from other passages that those whom God justifies, He also regenerates and He sanctifies So God declares us righteous legally by justification. He doesn't stop there. He gives us also new life in Christ, begins to make us righteous through the work of sanctification. But Paul is not interested in developing the doctrines of regeneration or sanctification at this point in Romans. His concern is that we understand the doctrine of justification. Sadly, many people don't understand this doctrine. For example, the Roman Catholic teaching on this subject goes directly against what Paul is saying here. It teaches, here's another quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, it teaches that by our baptism we are made righteous and godly, that is, righteousness is infused into us, injected into us, it's put into us, and because we have been made righteous by our baptism we are justified. But that is to say that we are justified because we are sanctified, which is the exact opposite of what the Apostle is saying here. End quote. Paul is teaching that we are justified while we are still ungodly. So verses 4 and 5 delineate for us the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and then Paul, as a good teacher, knows he needs to illustrate it because you can only take so much content, you need a little, little illustration. So he pauses, and he illustrates it by referring to David. He says in verse 6, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Notice the word imputes. Again, that is a legal, forensic term. That is why Dr. R.C. Sproul, who, may, who is, in my opinion, the most gifted speaker on the topic of justification I've ever heard, he calls it alien righteousness. It's, it's an it's a alien right. It's not our righteousness. It's an alien right. It's outside of us. All of this is legal terminology, forensic. God imputes righteousness to our record. He declares us righteous. If Paul were talking about God actually making us righteous, Then he would use the word imparts. He imparts righteousness to us. But then he would be talking about sanctification. He's not talking about sanctification. So let me differentiate the two. Just quick bullet points. Justification is when God declares us righteous. Sanctification is when He makes us righteous. Justification is a legal or judicial act of God. Progressive sanctification is an ongoing process of God. We are declared righteous instantly by the act of justification. We are made righteous daily through the process of sanctification. So, there aren't degrees of justification. You're either justified or you're not. No degrees, but there are degrees of sanctification. Justification is when the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Sanctification is when the righteousness of Christ is imparted to us as we grow more like Him. Paul uses the word impute or credit here in verse 6 because he is discussing justification, not regeneration, not sanctification. So in verses 7 and 8, he quotes a passage from David which talks about justification. Verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. These verses are a quote from Psalm 32. The psalm was written by David as a confession of his sin with Bathsheba. In Psalm 32, David is rejoicing because God doesn't hold sins against those who are justified. The psalm, Psalm 32, describes the blessing of forgiveness. Verse 2 of that psalm says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Do you realize, students, God could impute sin to us? In other words, He could hold it against us if He chose to do so. He could keep it on the heavenly ledger. He has a perfect right to do so. But God graciously chooses to forgive those who believe in Him. And of course, this is consistent with God's character. He's a forgiving God. In Psalm 86, 5, it says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call on you. Psalm 103:12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. In Isaiah 118, God says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, even I... Am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And so the prophet Micah in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God is a forgiving God. And really, you could say it this way. Forgiveness is the other side of the coin of justification. Justification really has two sides to it. On one side is forgiveness. God forgives our sin, and He doesn't hold it against us. On the other side is what we were talking about a moment ago, is the imputation of righteousness. Both sides are a component of justification. God not only forgives our sins, if that's all He did, think about this, there's a sense in which if God just forgave our sins, we would only be neutral in His eyes. No sin against us. But God goes beyond that to impute the righteousness of Christ to our account so that we stand before Him not neutral, but righteous. So justification is not just the absence of something negative against us. Maybe you've heard this. I've heard this one for years. People say, well, justification, the way to define it is justification is just as if I'd never sinned. That's a pretty interesting play on words, but it's only half true. Yes, justification or justify is just as if I'd never sinned, but that's only the negative. But it is that plus the presence of something positive, namely the righteousness of Christ. That's why Psalm 32, 2 says that the man who receives this gracious gift from God is truly blessed. Student, listen, do you realize how blessed you are as a child of God? Do you realize how priceless God's gift of forgiveness and justification is? Does it, ask yourself honestly, does it thrill your soul to hear these truths? It ought to. It really ought to. David, in Psalm 32, agonized under the weight and turmoil and strain of his sin, but when he confessed it and was forgiven, he said it was like a ton lifted off of him. He realized how blessed it is to be forgiven. And Christian, don't ever take that for granted. Don't fail to appreciate the invaluable gift of forgiveness and justification. Now, as we close, I want to just have us look at one other passage for just a couple minutes which describes this same divine transaction. And that is from Romans over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So past 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation, All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So how do you become a new person? How can you be different? Well, this verse says, when you're in Christ, when you come to be in Christ, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and that happens when we are reconciled to God, because verse 18 says this, the next verse, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing, you recognize that word? How many times have we already seen it this morning? Not imputing their trespass to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So Paul says here, he's describing another facet of God's salvation. We've focused on justification, but I've mentioned regeneration. Here's reconciliation. All of these are are facets of the diamond of salvation. And, And he says reconciliation is one of those facets, and the fact that we need to be reconciled means that in our natural condition we are alienated from God. There is a barrier between us, and it's our sin. But verse 19 says that the work of Jesus on the cross means that God does not have to impute Or reckon our sin to us. And there's that legal forensic word again alien righteousness, legal standing. If Jesus had not died and paid the price and penalty for our sin, then God could not have forgiven our sin because it would have violated His justice and holiness. As loving as God is, as forgiving as God is, He can't just say, you know, I like those people so much, I think I'll forgive them, with no basis. He can't do that but because Jesus paid the price that means that God doesn't have to impute our sin to us he could hold it against us he could keep it on the heavenly ledger he has a perfect right to do so but God graciously chooses to forgive those who believe him and are reconciled to him and to impute not their sins but righteousness and so this chapter closes Verse 20, now, then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then this statement, maybe the the most, what would you say, amazing statement of salvation in the fewest amount of words anywhere in the New Testament. For he, that is God, made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin, To be sin for us. Again, gang, notice this is legal standing. Jesus legally became a sinner. He never sinned. He wasn't actually a sinner, but He was legally a sinner. He made Him to be sin for us. So that, now here's justification, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This verse describes the divine transaction. Our sin is reckoned to Christ. His righteousness is reckoned to us. What an amazing piece of divine bookkeeping. And that's the terminology Paul is using here. He's using legal terminology, banking terminology, financial terminology. So this is an amazing piece of divine bookkeeping. Aren't you thankful for the way God keeps the books? I am. I am because I am a sinner who needs the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be able to stand before a holy God. And Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That's something I am more than glad to give up, my iniquity. He took my iniquity from me and placed it on Christ. Jesus took my sin so I could have His righteousness What a trade. Now do you see why people, why Christians in the Reformation were willing to die for this doctrine? It wasn't because they were stubborn. It wasn't because they were impudent. It wasn't any of that. It was because they realized that there is no more important or precious truth anywhere than this one. Because if you miss this one, it doesn't matter how much of the rest of your theology is right. If you miss this one, nothing else matters. And so, believers were willing to die to say, I will not renounce sola fide. I will not renounce salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because other than outside of that, there is no hope. No answer. And so, as Luther said on one famous occasion, on this I stand. And I hope you stand on it and don't view it as some trivial issue and say, well, that's just an old-fashioned fight between Catholics and Protestants and all of that stuff. It's just irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. We're talking about people's eternal destiny. That's why it matters. Let's pray as we close. Father, how do we even respond to such a marvelous picture of divine bookkeeping where you take our iniquity, our sin, place it on Christ, and you grant us his righteousness. You impute his righteousness to our legal record, our standing before you. And Father, now we see, or maybe we already had seen, and they're just reminded of why this truth was so central in the Reformation, why it was so foundational, and why people were willing to give their very lives to hold to it and to refuse to renounce it. Because if we give on this, if we, if we stutter on this, if we compromise on this, then we're tampering with eternal destiny. Because Romans 4, 5 could not be any clearer. The only people that you justify are ungodly people. And so we must acknowledge and recognize our ungodliness and receive by faith, not by works, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen.